1: You know what, as a matter of fact, I'm going to be praying for you. It's because I know light-skinned people go through a lot in the wintertime, y'all get real pale. You know what I'm saying? You don't get a lot of sunlight.
2: It's a struggle. It's a struggle. It is
1: a struggle, and I can feel the pain, you know. And I don't know if there's like a light-skinned group, you know, kind of prayer ministry that y'all get together Uh. every winter and just kind of look out for each other. You know what I'm saying? That's something that you should think about, brother. Brothers and sisters, sisters. (laughs) my name is Kirk Franklin. And I come to give you good words. Let's go.
2: All right, let's do it.
1: Y'all, I'm trying to impress him. (laughs) trying to press them y'all ladies and gentlemen I got somebody in the studio with me I got somebody on Good Words and listen, listen have you ever heard of an EGOT it means Emmy (laughs) Grammy Oscar Tony and he got all of them y'all (laughs) He's from the church he was raised like your boy but he's been all over the world taken over the world and he is a phenomenon but he's an incredible brother ah ladies and gentlemen welcome to good words the legend john legend
2: Yes, sir. Woo! I'm, I'm impressed. I'm impressed. <laughs> John, man, you first met in the men's
1: bathroom back in 2004.
2: Oh, my Lord. <laughs> Where were we at? Where were we at? The BT Awards? Where were we? <laughs> oh,
1: man. We first met in 2004. You were opening up on the Kanye Usher tour.
2: Oh, yes. Yes.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. You were on the Kanye Usher tour, and I had to go pee.
2: (laughs) As one does. (laughs)
1: Yes, yes, yes. And you were like, yo, man, my name's John Legend. I'm from the church. My dad is a pastor. He's like, yo, man, I love your music. And I'm thinking, bro, I know who you are. Now, Now, mind you, your album wasn't even out yet.
2: That's right. It was a few months before Get Lifted came out. We were yeah. opening for Usher. This was during the Confessions album. And obviously that album was one of the biggest albums ever. But yes. uh, Kanye was opening for Usher and I was Kanye's you know, sidekick. I would sing with him, I would play <laughs> keys. And yes. uh, we toured with Usher a few months before my album came out. But Kanye would let me do one song of mine, which was Used to Love You, my very first single. And yeah. then uh, that kind of set us up. That was our first single. And then Ordinary People came right after that. And yes. uh, and then I didn't have to introduce myself as much. People started to know who I was. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir.
1: And you'd have to worry about just random men in the bathroom you having to talk to them. <laughs> it's because we both had to go pee. Now, were you just really trying to be nice to me? Or Please. did you really know, like, were you really that engrafted in the gospel music?
2: Oh, of course I was. And not only was I then grafted in it, I used to teach your songs to my choirs when I was directing the choir. We would wow. sing melodies from heaven. And wow. you know, I taught them so many Kirk Franklin songs. So your music <laughs> was a part of my story. And wow. so many other church folks' story, of course, but uh, mine most certainly. And when I was a teenager, I was growing up in Springfield, Ohio and your music was coming out, and I was teaching my youth choir your music, and then when I went to college in Philadelphia, I would drive up to Scranton to an AME church up in Scranton, and I was hired to direct the music there, and I was teaching them your songs, man. So when I met you, uh, I didn't need any kind of education in gospel music to know who you were. I knew exactly who you were, and it was a pleasure to meet you.
1: Listen, man, I am very humbled by that just because the breadth of your musical your musical IQ, when I hear how you have been able to present your bodies of work, it's very obvious that you're tapped into so many different genres and you are a genre bender. And so mm-hmm. since you came up in church, were you raised in one of those kind of homes where you couldn't listen to anything else but gospel? Or were you exposed to all these different tapestries of music and sound?
2: I grew up not being able to listen to anything but gospel early on until, you know, I was probably 11 or 12. My okay. parents got divorced and we started going to public school. So the world just kind of opened up. Mm. But before that, yeah, it was almost all gospel. So we grew up on the widenings and commissioned and... Fred Hammond, Radical for Christ. I know, right? We <laughs> grew up on all of that. Clark Sisters, Bishop James Watkins. If I don't know if y'all know him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> God. Uh, boy, you pulled that out your bag. I grew up in the PAW, so he was a bishop. He was a, a Charles Watkins, excuse me. Not James Watkins, James Cleveland as well. But uh, Charles Watkins, he was a PAW uh, bishop, and uh, he was based in Cleveland. And I grew up in Springfield, Ohio. And so we used to listen to him, but we also listened to James Cleveland as well. Yeah, James Cleveland, yeah. Yes. But that was my whole upbringing. And then I started getting exposed to all kinds of music when I was a teenager and in public school. But before that, it was strictly church music.
1: Now, the music you were being exposed to in high school or public school, it's obvious that it wasn't just black music. So like, how did that appetite come to you where you were not only listening to music outside of your culture, but enjoying it and embracing it? And it was becoming part of your DNA when you would give birth to your own music.
2: Well, honestly, it didn't really happen until I went to college. So when I was in high school, I was still strictly black music. It was hip hop, R&B, New Jack Swing. And then mm-hmm. plus the mm-hmm. stuff my dad grew up on, like Motown. As a teenager, it was more like hip hop and R and B of that moment. So Joe or Boys to Men or W yeah, V yeah, yeah. or Mary J or D'Angelo or whatever in high school, I didn't really know many white artists at all, truthfully. <laughs> and then when I went to college, though, I went to University of Pennsylvania. I was in Philadelphia, and so I was around the Philly Soul scene, the Philly Neo Soul scene, but also I was singing in a acapella group that was. Mixed race, co-ed, we would sing jazz, we Mm. would sing pop, we would sing singer-songwriter, rock, everything. And so some of those friends that I sang with started to expose me to different kinds of music. And then as an adult, I really started to expand a bit more. And you'll hear influences of all kinds of artists from my adult life. But the core of who I am has always been gospel and soul music. Now I get that. And so
1: when did you realize that there was something inside of you musically that you wanted to communicate. And I also want to ask you this, because you were so deeply rooted in the church, did you go through any private behind the scenes kind of convictions of that maybe you were turning your back on God or something Mm -hmm. when you wanted to do music outside of the traditional gospel sounds that you were doing? Like, did you deal with any tension? And if you did, how did you deal with it?
2: So to answer your first question, when did I know that I had something in me? Well, I grew up going to choir rehearsal because my mother was a choir director before I was, and my grandmother was the church organist. So I grew up around a lot of music. So we had a piano at the house. My grandmothers both had pianos at their houses, and we were just always exposed to music. And from going to choir rehearsal with my mother, even before they let me sing in the choir, I would be there and I would be watching, I'd be wanting to be a part of it. And mm. I didn't know if I could write songs, I didn't know what the future held, but I knew that I was attracted to music and I was attracted to singing and I wanted to do it. And so I was begging them to let me sing the choir when I was like five and six years old. And finally, <laughs> when I was seven, they let me sing in the choir and I was taking piano lessons when I was four. And as soon as I, me too. Yes. And as soon as I got up there on the uh, dais and started to sing and started to feel what that was like to feel the energy coming back from that audience and from the congregation. And then I felt that, you know, in school plays as well. So I felt this energy. And I love that feeling of being able to connect with people and exchange love and positive energy with people from the stage. And I felt like, this was what I wanted to do. I wanted to sing. And mm. uh, life took me in a lot of different directions because I was also a really good student. So I was able to go to an Ivy League school and get a good mm. corporate job after school. But I always knew that I wanted to make music for a living. And so I was always trying to do everything. I was trying to make as much music as I could make, but also be a straight A student, also do you know all the other things right that I needed to do. But music was always the thing I loved the most. And it was always my dream to be exactly where I am. And even when I was 15 years old, I wrote an essay. There was a competition sponsored by McDonald's. It was for Black History Month, and they called it Future Black History Makers of Tomorrow. And the essay prompt was just, how do you plan to make Black history? And my answer was that I was going to become a successful musician, and I was going to use that success to uplift my community, fight for justice, or fight for equality. And mm. that was my vision for myself when I was 15 years old. And now I'm 43 and I'm living that that vision to the fullest.
1: Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Tell me about that tension. Tell me about yeah. if you had any private tension. Did you feel any pressure from the older saints? Because I'm impressed to hear you even tell me about how you were so engrafted into gospel music and you were so aware of what was happening around you with the spiritual music you were listening to and so as you were transitioning to this pop icon at the beginning of it did you feel any struggle
2: well I grew up in a, a, a very you know conservative Pentecostal church where they didn't even want us to go to the movies when I was a kid they didn't want us to listen to secular music and yeah. so there was definitely that taboo what kind of made me feel more liberated was when i went away to college and you know started to be on my own and and even though i was still playing in the church at the time on the weekends i still felt enough autonomy and independence where i felt like i could make whatever decisions i felt like i needed to make and i think what was interesting was being the child of divorce, because once my parents got divorced, things started to loosen up when it came to a lot of the rules, because so much of the strictness was kind of within that mother, father, you know, authority structure. Mm -hmm. When our family kind of fell apart, it kind of forced us to be more independent. And because of that, the independence is kind of a gift to the curse. It's like the hard Mm -hmm. part is that you still need your parents' support. You still need that love from both of them, but when you don't have it, forces you to start to grow up uh, earlier than you probably would have otherwise. And so I think that growing up before I would have otherwise also made me feel like I was empowered to make my own decisions and go where I was inspired to go musically. And so that's what I did. wanted to write about the full experience of life. I felt like doing it, in the way that I've been doing it, was the way that was going to make sense for me. And that's what I've done.
1: You know, even when I listen to Ordinary People, is I still hear the motif of a spiritual journey. Yeah. For me personally, to just as a yeah. songwriter myself, it's, yeah. it's, when I heard Ordinary People, it just speaks to what I also think that gospel music is. That is not only a snapshot of this vertical experience, right? Mm-hmm. But there's this horizontal of okay, who am I? And what am I created for? And and how do I deal with the ebbs and flows of love and life and winning and losing yeah. and gaining? And so just tell me a little bit about that process of this brilliant song. Because you know what was crazy about just about ordinary people is because again, the album came out in 04, right?
2: December 04.
1: And it was counterintuitive to everything that sounded like black radio at the moment, you know, like it didn't have drums. It was just piano. And I remember being at this high school in the, in this urban community and remember the kids being around the piano while I played ordinary people. And it's like the football players, the basketball players, every young hood kid, in the midst of, let's see, because who was running the charts? Like Cash Money was running the charts back then. B2K was running the charts. And R. Kelly was running the charts. And so many other urban-sounding artists and just had it on lock. And then here comes Ordinary People that is counterintuitive to everything that was happening in the ecosystem of music. I want you to tell me how it was for you when you found out that this song that you probably took a chance on... That your label took a chance on, that radio took a chance on. How did you feel when you found out that even with your
2: people, it hit? Well, here's what happened. The, the full story of Ordinary People is it started in a session with Will I Am from the Black IPs. So we had the same manager at that time, and we had written other songs for my project, for his projects. We had written She Don't Have to Know together from that same album, Get Lifted. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had written a couple of hooks for the Black Eyed Peas already by that point. And so we had a good songwriting rapport together. And he played a beat for me, and I started singing the melody to Ordinary People to that beat. And that song was originally supposed to be kind of like a hip hop pop song uh, hooked by me, but the Black Eyed Peas were going to rap on it. It was a whole separate idea but the course Amazing. was the same. And a couple of days later, I was like, I had written a few hooks for him that night. And I was like, you know what? Well, I want to keep this one for myself. So I kept Ordinary People for myself. And my only promise to him was I was going to let him produce whatever final version of Ordinary People there was. But I was like, it feels like more of an R&B song and I want to make it. So anyway, I went off. I was on tour internationally with Kanye and there on the road doing sound checks and different things. And I'm writing all the verses to ordinary people and telling the story about the ups and downs of love, the push and pull of of how Mm -hmm. real people experience love. And I was honestly basing it a lot on my parents' situation because they had been married and divorced and then they got married together again and then they were divorcing again (laughs) around that time. And so I was writing it really based on that. And I recorded a piano demo version of the song, and I thought of it as a scratch version that I was going to send to Will and have him produce up. And of course, the version that came to the world was that demo piano version, because it just was so striking. Like you said, it would grab people's attention and didn't sound like anything else on the radio. It made people just stop and pay attention. And people would tell me, they pulled over their cars when the song came on the first time when they heard it on the radio because it just sounded so strikingly different from everything else that was on black radio. And it didn't really cross over. Like, all of me crossed over, but ordinary people did not cross over really. It was almost strictly a black radio phenomenon in America. Overseas it crossed over in different places, but in America it was almost strictly on urban AC and urban mainstream radio and some rhythm. And then we had a remix that played on some more rhythm stations. But the majority of people that caught on to Ordinary People were folks that listened to black music. It wasn't a pop radio hit. Really? It wasn't. Yeah. Really? It, was, it was us, man, <laughs> that made Ordinary People big. And the first station that played it was WGCI in Chicago. Yes. So Yeah, buddy. That's Elroy. Yeah, sir. So we had put out Used to Love You as the first single. And I was out on the mm-hmm. road with Usher and Kanye promoting that. We would go to the stations and promote it. And then we had a sampler and the sampler had a full version of Used to Love You, a full version of Ordinary People, and then three snippets of other songs on the Get Lifted album. Oh, those were the days.
1: Those were the days. (laughs) Yes, you remember those
2: samplers? So we gave the sampler out and we were promoting Used to Love You, but GCI was like, we want to play this one. And so they started playing Ordinary People And it blew up in Chicago. And then other stations started to grab onto it. And it organically just kept growing. And then eventually we shot a video for it. By 2005, it really took off. And I always tell people the day I knew I was famous was the day that I got a call on my cell phone from both Magic Johnson and Oprah Winfrey on the same day. And they Mm. both heard Ordinary People and they loved the new album. And they both asked me to sing at an event they were doing separately, separate events at their different homes. Wow. Oprah was a, store, a thing called the Legends Ball. I don't know if you remember this. She honored oh, yeah, all these yes, black women, yes. just yeah, like yeah. some of her favorite black women in every, you know, genre, whether they were actors or musicians or whatever they were. And she brought them all to honor them at her place in Montecito. And then Magic had a charity event in his backyard at his house. And both of them called me the same day to invite me to both of those things and to perform. And I always tell people that's the day I knew I had uh, crossed the line into being a famous person. And we were on, on a new journey. <laughs> I feel it. I feel it. You know what?
1: Man, I got to say this. I got to say this. To hear you say that a song like Ordinary People became a smash because of us in the middle. is because I remember. I remember the landscape of Black music then. You know what I'm saying? It was, you know, girl, you look good when you back that thing up and, you know, it was ludicrous. Like, I know how heavy it was in hip hop music and other forms of black interpretation of who we are. What do you think that says about our people that sometimes is I think that we serve people only what we think they want to eat and forget? that there is a whole meal that our people want to enjoy. Do you think that as creatives that we're forgetting that? And do you think that we are now just only super serving the one side of who we are and missing the fact that we're storytellers too, that we want to hear a great love song that ain't got nothing to do with, you know, all of the sexual innuendos that that are also part of life. I'm not trying to hate on the totality of who humans are and what humans do, but to know that ordinary people became a smash, even by like niggas in the hood. (laughs) Like, what does that say to you as a creative? Do you think that sometimes we're missing and underplaying the breadth of who we are and what we like? And so everything we're eating now seems so marginalized.
2: Well, I think Black folks are complex. We're interesting. We're so diverse and there's so much to who we are. We've always been innovators when it comes to popular music. So Mm -hmm. much of the innovation that happens in music overall is coming from Black creatives, coming from Black music. And there's always going to be this push and pull of trying to do what you think is going to be popular versus Creating something new and different and fresh that you want to bring people to you rather than going to them, you know? And I think that tension is real. And it may be a healthy tension where you're always going back and forth. You're like, I know what's working right now. Should I cater to that? Or should I make people come to where I am and create something that's going to be the next thing that's working? And I think it's a never ending challenge. It's probably, A healthy part of being creative because you're always feeling that push and pull, that tug of will this work? I don't know. Is it (laughs) it different? Is it just different enough that it feels fresh and exciting? And so much of the innovation in music has come from us, though, pushing and saying this is what's next.
1: Do you feel like the new generation is pushing? Or do you feel like more they're being pulled?
2: Well... I was just talking about this whole TikTok thing. And I think a lot of musicians are feeling frustrated with the dominance of TikTok and the sense that you have to play in that realm for anything to work. And you have to figure out a way to go viral and for things to trend in that way for anything to work. And, uh, you know, I think we're all dealing with that and trying to figure out whether it's making us chase the wrong thing you know what i'm saying and um when i'm in the studio TikTok does not come up it's like i'm just <laughs> trying to make music i'm just trying to make yeah. music that i love and that i believe in and that i would want to listen to and that i want to present to the world and hope they want to listen to too but then once we get into marketing the music you do feel like you have to meet people where they are and You have to bring them music that's going to grab them and get them to go listen to the whole project. And so we do use TikTok in that way where we're trying to, like, connect with people and make them check out maybe this one song that's trending in one way and then go check out the whole album as a result of having checked out that song. And so, you know, I think everybody is worried because it feels like the labels only care about what's working on TikTok. And that's a different metric than is it a great song? Is it a song that people really want to hear? It's can it go viral? Yes, for whatever reason.
1: Yeah, yeah. Ah, (laughs) Uh. (laughs) and it is the (laughs) it is the the tension, tension, man. That's the (laughs) tension. And it's good to know that even somebody as accomplished as you you still feel that tension. You feel the tension, whether you are creating content for movies, for television, for theater. And then you've come from such a great history of being raised in the Black religious tradition. And it not only inspired your relationship to music, but you've also said that it laid the foundation for your
2: activism as well. You Mm -hmm. you kind
1: of talked about that, right, John? Can you kind of elaborate just a little bit more, brother?
2: Well, I think... Anybody who knows about the history of the Black Church and the history of the Civil Rights Movement in America knows that they were so intertwined and they have been for so long because one the Black Church was one of the only places in America where we could fully be leaders in our community. We had control. We ran our churches. They were the places where we congregated not only to worship but we congregated to organize boycotts and fight for justice and Get people to march. Some of our most important civil rights leaders were our pastors, our religious leaders. And so the Black church has always been so central to the fight for justice in America for Black people. So when I was coming up in the church, I was inspired by that tradition. And so when I thought about what it meant to live an impactful life, to live a life that meant something beyond what I could do for myself. It was a lot of Black pastors that were the inspiration. We talk about Dr. King, but he was also Reverend Dr. King, you know? And the fact that his activism was rooted in the teachings of Jesus, rooted in a sense of love for all of our neighbors, rooted in creating this beloved community, that was an important part of his message. And Mm -hmm. it provided so much of the righteous indignation and moral force that he came with. And uh, it was such an important part of the struggle.
1: Now, do you feel like the black church has moved away from that activist tradition?
2: I think it has to some extent. There's uh, other people who can speak with more expertise on that. But, um, you know, I think everything in America has some capitalist kind of influence. And I think sometimes church leaders don't want to offend anybody nowadays. And they want to preach kind of a feel-good message, a prosperity message. And they don't want to be controversial when it comes to politics. And also, I think because a lot of progressive politics has been more inclusive of our gay and lesbian brothers and sisters. So many groups that the church has always had a difficult relationship with over the years. And even when it comes to women's rights, the church has always been a little bit behind when it comes to that as well. And so I think because of a lot of the political frontier when it comes to rights and justice and equality and progressive values, has ventured in the territory that some folk in the church aren't as comfortable with, that might be a reason as well.
1: Yeah, and not only are we dealing with the issues of racism outside of our community, but now we're dealing with classism inside the community.
2: And I think this prosperity gospel can yeah. lend into that because once you start yeah. preaching that your wealth and your blessings on yes. earth are tied yes. to your morality and your righteousness yep. as a person... Yeah then the next step is blaming people for being poor. That's the next step. So we have to be careful about that, I think.
1: (laughs) Yes, I think prosperity gospel sucks. And I think (laughs) those that preach it suck.
2: I wasn't going to say it. I'll... <laughs>
1: I'll say it. No, I'm going to say it. It sucks. It sucks because it makes the gospel in Jesus Santa Claus. And your blessings and your identity cannot be quantified by what you have in your hand, what you drive, where you live. All of those things are problematic to any teaching <laughs> that is supposed to be about something bigger and greater than you. And so, you know, don't even give me on my soapbox on that, bro, because I would, <laughs> well, you know. <laughs>
2: and even just looking at all the Jesus' statements on rich folks... He mm-hmm. was very skeptical. <laughs> he was no, very yeah, skeptical. He was. Yeah, he was. Yeah. I mean, like I said, the next step, whenever you preach that, is that folks feel like they've done something wrong mm-hmm. toward God
0: if, if they're they not don't rich.
1: have it. Yes. Yeah, buddy. Yeah, buddy. And John and I do want to give a shout out to all the men and women that are preaching balance. There are some good guys. There's some good people out there that are doing great jobs. And so we're not making a blanket statement on the overall narrative of the church and people of faith. But we do want to point out these unnecessary representatives that are not making the cause and case any better. With that, we're going to take a quick break. And let's get back into it. John, let me ask you this. What social justice issue are you most focused on in this moment of John Legend's life?
2: Well, we focus the most on the criminal justice system. We have an organization called Free America. We really believe in redemption. We really believe in the idea that we shouldn't be locking so many people up.
1: Amen. get Amen. people
2: up. To- opportunity to be forgiven and to right their wrongs in a way that's not as harmful to them and to their community as incarceration has been. And so we've been fighting to decarcerate, to apply the law more fairly, regardless of your race or your financial status. We believe that this nation should be just and fair and also merciful. And so we've been working to do that. And again, that's rooted in my upbringing as well, because we were taught forgiveness, we were taught redemption, and I believe that we were taught grace as well. And I believe that that has to play out in our public life. And one of the ways we do that is by reconsidering and reshaping the way we think about what justice means and having it much more tempered with grace and mercy.
1: Yes, yes, yes. John, I got another one though. As someone mm-hmm. as politically engaged as you are, who organizes for change, what would you say is one of the most important things that everyday folks should be focused on? Because see, when you have a platform like yours, a lot of people can say, well, it's easy for him to get engaged because he has all the resources, he has the name and he has the access. But how can everyday people that may have the same passion that you have, how can they become impactful and making the same type of changes that you believe are necessary for our communities and for our country to become better
2: i think it really starts at home it starts locally and you know i'm able to do things nationally and sometimes internationally because of who i am the amount i'm able to travel the amount of influence i have worldwide but everybody is part of a community and i think it's important for you to look at what's happening in your community what inspires you, whether it's a homelessness issue, whether it's a hunger issue, whether it's a criminal justice issue. It actually is pretty easy to get involved locally if you want to do it. There are folks who are looking for volunteers, folks who are looking for help. And even if you don't have the money to do it, even your time can be really valuable. And you've got to look around what's happening in your community and decide Well, what inspires me? What gets me excited to get involved? Whether it's even just organizing, volunteering to get people out for the election. All of those things are important. And I think if you start locally and start with whatever your passion is, whatever inspires you, that's the best way to do it. And it's going to be different answers for different people. But so many of the decisions that affect our lives are done on a local level, whether it's Mm, mayors. so right and city councils deciding on zoning and our school systems and police funding and how many people we lock up for this or that reason. All those things are are, on local and state level. And uh, we pay a lot of attention to, you know, Biden or Trump or whoever's in office at any particular time nationally. But so many of the major decisions that affect our lives are done on a local level. And we got to pay attention to those elections and follow up, pay attention beyond the election as
1: well. Yeah. Local government is a mess and it is so difficult. And I think people become very just overwhelmed and it can be very daunting because local government, it can be very strong on by what region of the country you live in. Yeah, Like here in Texas, it's almost like it's very difficult to move anything that is counterintuitive to a conservative view or a conservative ideal. And so Yeah, Yeah. but ladies and gentlemen, I agree with John, we still have to keep the fight, we have to keep the battle.
2: And because local, it's kind of small, like going to these town meetings or or getting involved in local Mm -hmm. elections, because that actually means that the people that speak up the most, the people that get involved the most, they have an outsized influence because there's not a lot of folks that are are willing to do it. And so Mm -hmm. if the other side is the only one making all the noise, then they're the ones that are going to get heard. And they're the ones who are going to get their priorities taken care of. And so we have to make sure we're vocal, too, so that yeah. our priorities are getting taken care of.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. As well as, you know, local funding comes from state funding. I think that there is a bigger conversation that me and you can't have because it's above our pay grade. But I really do think that a lot of the infrastructure of American politics should be revisited. Oh, I yeah. think at some point, think that that. This, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's because a lot of these issues and, and we've heard this with words so much over the last uh, half a decade, but they are systemic and not just for black folk, but for yeah. all folk, you know, but man, you know what? Let me just say this to you before we move on is I do want to say to you that I am impressed and I tip my hat to you, John, because your passion for social injustice and for social justice is something that has become part of the tapestry that fans have come to know you by and because you've been consistent in that message. And I want to commend you on that, brother, because I know that can be very daunting. And I know it can be very fatiguing to try to stay current, to want to stay relevant musically, fashion. I know, man, you love Rich Fresh. Shout out to Rich Fresh. That's the Shout homie. Out. he be killing it. Shout out to Rich Fresh. He's a beast.
2: He got uh, behind all of our Las Vegas residency yeah, I know. outfits I know. He and killed. he killed it. And we love Rich Fresh. He's a brother based out here in yeah. LA, but he's from Memphis and he's the yeah. true.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. And even make little man sizes for me. So shout out to Rich Fresh for making little man sizes. <laughs> so man, I do want to ask you these questions now, but I promise you that I'm going to be very integral and very keep it on the lighter side of the conversation because I think that mean you both coming from a place of faith we always want to have a door open for redemption for everybody. So even the questions I'm about to ask you about Kanye is I want to talk about the good, because again, I don't ever want to have a conversation that doesn't leave a door open. So tell me, how did that phone call happen? How did that introduction happen? You're in Pennsylvania doing music. You're walking around, you know what I'm saying? Good looking, young, light-skinned brother. You know what I'm saying? You got this really unique (laughs) Oh <laughs> you know what? As a matter of fact I'm gonna be praying for you It's because I know light skinned people go through a lot in the time. y'all get real pale. You know, so you don't get a lot of sunlight. It's a you. struggle. I know y'all go That's through a, a lot. You know it's a struggle and I can feel the pain, you know, and I don't know if there's like a light skinned group You know, kind of prime ministry that y'all get together Uh, every winter and just kind of look out for each other. You know what I'm saying? That's something that you should think about, brother. I think uh, there's a light-skinned support group (laughs) during the winter times of the year that could really use your encouragement. I don't know which way to go. go. We don't know which way to go. We don't know which way to go. What were you doing? Where were you at?
2: How did that happen to get that
1: call and that
2: connect? So I was actually in New York at that time. So I graduated from school and after a year in Boston, I moved to New York. Hold on, hold on, hold on,
1: hold on, on, ladies and gentlemen, hold on, ladies and gentlemen, young musicians, listen to what he just said. (laughs) He graduated. He didn't (laughs) kill one dream just for the other dream. Both dreams can live at the same time. All right, brother, please continue.
2: Yes, sir. So I graduated from University of Pennsylvania. I got a job was as a management consultant. So this is in the corporate world, you know, a lot of nerdy stuff, PowerPoint slides and Excel spreadsheets and charts and whatnot. And so that was my day job. And I did it for a year in Boston, but I knew I wanted to make music for a living. So I uh-huh. asked him to transfer me to New York because I felt like there would be more opportunity for me to be heard and seen in New York. And so I transferred to New York and during the day, I'm working, and then at night, I'm making music. I'm playing gigs around New York, and I would play at little clubs, sometimes with my band, sometimes by myself on the piano. And my roommate at the time was Kanye's cousin. And Kanye wasn't some famous producer at the time. He was just a young guy that had was about to move to New York from Chicago. My roommate, his cousin, Devon, Devon says, yo, you got to meet my cousin, Kanye. He's moving here. And he just started working with Jay-Z. Y'all should work together. And so he invites him to a show I had in Harlem. I had a place called Jimmy's Uptown. And I played the gig. And then after the show, Devon introduces me and Kanye. And we just briefly met at that moment. But Devon was persistent. He was like, yo, you guys got to work together. For real, This is going to be great for both of you. And then eventually we started working together. I would go to his apartment. He had a little studio in his apartment in Newark, New Jersey. We would be working on all the tracks y'all know as College Dropout. He was recording early versions of those that same time. He was writing with me songs that would eventually be on Get Lifted. And so eventually I signed with his production company, Good Music. And Devon was basically running his production company at that time. And I was their first major signee wow. and first artist that they really uh, put out uh, as an artist. Kanye helped me get a deal at Columbia through good music. And we had tried at multiple places before. I'd been trying to get a deal since 98 when I was still in college. The first time I ever played on a big record was Lauren Hill's Miseducation Lauren Hill. This is before Kanye. This was through a contact. What did you do? I played piano and everything is everything. I played piano. Are you serious? Yeah. That's the first thing I ever played on. I started working with some of the producers that worked on that. I was still a student at Penn at that time. And then when I graduated, I still worked with some of those producers and some other producers in Philly and New York. And I was building a repertoire of solo songs that I had written. And and then when I started working with Kanye, it just amped it up because his influence really just helped my music grow. He really brought more hip-hop influence into what I was doing. And so it was really a nice fusion of soul and hip hop. And so us working together was just a great combination for both of us. And you'll hear me all over College Dropout, even when you don't know it's me. I'm like singing the uh, uh, That's you? Jesus <laughs> Yeah, that's me.
1: That's genius, I'm sorry.
2: We were creating this album and it just felt like it was going to be so special and so classic and so meaningful. And I told Kanye at that time, I was like, I was a part of the Miseducation of Lauryn Hill, and now I'm a part of your debut album. I feel like both of these albums are going to like stand the test of time. It's like these historic albums that change hip-hop and I agree. move hip-hop in a new direction. By the time College Dropout came out, he was huge. You know, he debuted, sold like 400,000 records the first week. Yes. Um, and everybody's like, well, what's next out of his camp? And I was next. And uh, Columbia signed me in May of that year because College Dropout had come out in February. And a lot of these same labels that turned me down uh, prior to College Dropout uh, coming out, everything sounded a lot uh, better once they saw how many units he did the first week.
1: When did you get a snapshot of you were working with someone that was going to change the trajectory of popular music. When did it hit you that, okay, he different?
2: Well, it was right after the accident, and he was camped out in Los Angeles at the record plant, and I was still working my corporate job, but I took some days off and he flew me out to l a and I was like, whoa, they are making some beautiful, special music that's going to change the world. Wow. Jesus Walks probably with the track. <laughs> Jesus Walks was a track that was like, oh, my God. <laughs> it just feels so different. Yes. It feels so special. Yes. It feels so energizing and so monumental. And then you hear it loud on the speakers at record plant. And that's when I was like, man, I've been part of this education and this. Yes. Like two world changing albums. Yes.
1: Yes. Yeah. You have no idea how mad I was at Jesus for giving him that song. You haven't. (laughs) I was like, I was like, Jesus, I've been walking with you. That should have been me. (laughs) Jesus, I've been walking with you a little bit longer. You could have loaned that to me, Jesus. (laughs) That record. (laughs) (laughs) I've been walking with you. Lord Jesus. Yeah. That record had all the ingredients for greatness. And I know that you as a, you know, man that loves people and loves faith. I know you're praying for him, John. I know you're praying for him and I know you're lifting him up, and as all of us are who really care about the souls of people, what message of healing do you think could be the greatest message of healing that Kanye could hear right now from people that do love him for who he is and not what he does?
2: I think Kanye, he knows that God's message was love. He knows that Jesus' message was love for our neighbors, love for people who don't look like us, love for Mm -hmm. people who are different from us. He knows that. And I think there are times when he forgets that and he says some things that are hateful Mm -hmm. and that are harmful. Mm -hmm. And some of the things he said in the past few weeks have been especially harmful and hateful Mm -hmm. toward people who honestly can't. Can afford to have this kind of vitriol directed at them because they've already mm. been victims of so much hate Great and point. vitriol. And I'm talking about black folks and yes. Jewish folks. Yes. And you think about both of our histories, a lot of times folks get into a competition about who's had it worse. But the fact is both of our groups have been marginalized yes. and terrorized yes. and abused in this country and in other places around the world. And for any of us to direct even more hate at Black folks, more hate at Jewish folks who've already been victims of so much hate, victims of so much violence because of who they are, that's just not something we should do. Agreed. And I know that Kanye has faith and he wants to do the right thing. And so I just want him to know that the right thing is for him to be spread in love. Yes, yes. And him to reject hate, reject violence, reject the harm that can come from his hateful language and the actions that can be inspired by it.
1: That was beautiful. It was brilliant. And we're sending those prayers and this message of hope and love to his direction today. Thank you, sir. Let's talk about you being a part of one of the hottest Hollywood couples in the streets. Let's talk about (laughs) the drip that you and first lady <laughs> evangelist chief prophetess first missionary christy tegan that y'all have this popping in them hollywood streets now both your joys and tragedies have been a part of the public consciousness and y'all have been very open and transparent and it's been a beautiful thing because both of y'all look good You know, I'm quite sure y'all smell good. You know, y'all just have this (laughs) ebb and flow of each other that just works. It's like, you know, she is your person. You can tell she's your person. Have you two been able to navigate all of that and stay centered in your individual lives and as a couple? Because y'all get a lot of love and y'all get a lot of shine. And a lot of regular people don't know what kind of pressure that could put on a couple to always be on, to always be perfect. And so how do you as John Legend navigate that?
2: Well, part of it is letting people know that we're not perfect. And I think part of the way we communicate to the world is showing them a bit of real life, you know? We obviously go to red carpets and get dressed up. We got the drip Mm -hmm. going. We have that, but we also just live a regular life with our kids, driving them to school in the morning, taking them to the zoo, taking them to the museum, doing what we do with our kids. We cook at home all the time. Together. Obviously, we're very blessed. We live a very privileged life, but so much of what we do is just, you know, being a family. And a lot of what we do on social media is less about showing them perfection, but showing them real life. And the fact that even famous people, even people really successful in their profession, still live a real life. And in that way, we've shown a lot of the joys of our family and what we love to do together. But we also share some of our pain as well. We're truly, in that sense, ordinary people. And you know, I know that was my first big song, but all of us deal with these ups and downs in life. All of us deal with these challenges in life. And we haven't shied away from sharing some of that. We don't share everything. I I know sometimes people feel like you might be sharing a lot, but honestly, we keep plenty to ourselves. But we do share plenty as well. And I think part of it is because I make my living writing songs about love and about family and about our human connection. And Chrissy makes a living as a food (laughs) entrepreneur, writing cookbooks and selling things that go in people's home. And so we show people part of our home life because it inspires our work life and it's part of our work life. And so we do share that stuff. And hopefully people realize that we are all human beings. We all have emotions, we all go through pain, we all go through challenges, and hopefully people feel that connection with us. That's right. (laughs) Yes, sir.
1: I have one more question, John, when it comes to marriage. Being a child of divorce, does it haunt you as you navigate being a married man? Like, do you have sometimes anxiety and fear? based on what you saw as a young man?
2: I would not say anxiety and fear. I think both uh, Chrissy and my parents are divorced and we see plenty of divorce in Hollywood. We see it in our news. And when we see that, it makes us even more resolved to stick it out. And no matter what we're going through and no matter what challenges we face, we feel like we're strong enough together to make it through that. And we don't want to get divorced. Like we don't want our kids splitting time between us. We don't want that kind of rift in our relationship. And we believe we are going to fight for our relationship no matter what. And I think that resolve partly comes from seeing the negative side of divorce Mm. with our families Mm. and other people in our lives. And I don't feel like we've ever had conflicts between us that have felt like they weren't resolvable. Mm. We've had challenges that were difficult for us to face together, but we actually faced them together. We fought for each other. We fought for our relationship together. And I just pray that we continue to do that. And hopefully we will. Listen, man,
1: that was encouraging to me because I can tell you, and I'll be very transparent because I've been married in January, 27 years. And there is a mm-hmm. high rise of divorce right now in the Christian community. It's gets off the charts right now, right? And it scares me. You know, it, it, it can shake me to my core to see people, you know, that I guess others would automatically assume would have these tools and these precepts to be able to make it.
2: I think people have to go to therapy. They need counseling, like mm-hmm. they need mm-hmm. to address whatever issues, because a lot of our issues aren't due to the person we're with. They're due to stuff that is yes. from childhood, from what we saw with our parents or yes. from what we saw that kind of helped form our personalities as kids. We have to deal with those things in order to be the best partners that we can be. And so folks, a lot of times we'll give up on the relationship without doing the work necessary to become the best partner they can be. And sometimes divorce is right, you know, sometimes it's the thing that needs to happen mm. because there's abuse, there's harm yeah, being done. Yeah, yeah. And the only way for you to live in peace and live the best life you can live is without that person. But I believe I'm with the person I'm supposed to be with. Beautiful. And I believe that I'm going to fight for our relationship no matter what.
1: Beautiful. 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 And that's what makes you Very inspiring as a songwriter, as a person, as an activist. And so I would love for you to tell me about this masterclass that you're doing. And I can't believe folks are going to have access to all of this knowledge in this way. Is there a lesson in this masterclass that you wish you had when you were first developing as a songwriter?
2: Well, the whole masterclass is on songwriting and really breaking down my process, breaking down How I get inspired, but also the methodology of crafting a song, all the, you know, the more kind of theoretical aspects of what it is to create a song, what different sections of a song mean. And then just my own unique way of crafting a song where I start by mumbling the melody and not knowing the lyric yet and finding my way to the lyric based on the music and everybody writes differently. But I explain what my process is and how to incorporate that into any other songwriter's process. And uh, I break down some of my biggest songs, whether it's Ordinary People or All of Me or Glory or any of these songs. I talk about how I wrote those songs, how I was inspired, the structure and the process that went into it. And I think anybody who enjoys or aspires to write music, this would be a good a class for them so they can understand a bit of how I work.
1: I need for you to also tell me how does it feel to know that this young, talented church boy from where you from Ohio, 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 Ohio. now you are on stage in Vegas. Like, like you gotta (laughs) tell me. What that was for you, bro, when you jumped on stage in Vegas and people are coming to see you and you got your shirt, you know, all the way buttoned down to your belly button. I see you. I see you. You got your taco meat showing and you you know what I'm saying? You got your your seven, eight necklaces on, but you're killing it. though. (laughs) Like, what was that for you? Like when your mom and daddy came to see you and, and your cousins, them, would come out to Vegas and see they boy killing it in Vegas.
2: I love it. Um, we put so much energy and creativity into doing this show. It's the biggest show we've ever done. We've never done a production at this level. When we were on tour or anywhere else, we put it all into this residency. And whenever my family comes, they're like, "Wow, <laughs> this is the best thing we've ever seen you do." Wow. Honestly, they're like, they've seen so many of my tours and so many of my shows, and they loved them. But this Vegas show was just on another level. And part of it is just, we just invested a lot into making the stage show and the choreography, everything just top-notch. But part of it's also because my approach to creating the show was to really tell my story from the beginning to now. And so we incorporate songs from every album. We talk about me coming up in the church. Our first scene in the show is Me as a little kid with actors, a kid playing me and an older lady playing my grandmother and Mm. just pointing to the influence that she had on me and that the church had on me. And then just going from there, my whole journey from the church to Philly and New York, to my career, to Vegas and all that has led us to. And so the whole show is a celebration of that entire journey. It's truly me being grateful, for this journey and and celebrating it on stage.
1: Now, is there a secret, John, and it's a serious question, is there a secret to how or what it is you use that lets the taco meat hair on your chest lay down smoothly on stage so that when the light hits it, <laughs> like it's got like a little wave to it? Like, what do you do to prepare before the show T- just to get the man chest hair to kind of just be smooth and waving like that. What exactly is that? The people want to know.
2: I'm done with you,
1: John. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about your latest album, man. What is the inspiration for uh, this latest
2: album, King? Well, the album's called Legend. It's a double album, and you know all the stuff we've been talking about. This is my life, and I put my life on this album. And I wanted to call it Legend because I felt like that's a great This name. was myself. <laughs> This was my self-titled album. This was the album that really fully represents who I am as a person and my loves in life, my inspirations in life. And I had a lot of time during the pandemic when we weren't on the road to really create this double album. And I wanted to put it all out there for people and hopefully people are really enjoying it. I'm loving the feedback we're getting, Mm. loving the connection that we're feeling. We're playing a few of the songs in Vegas. And I'm just loving the response we're getting to the music.
1: I am a fan. I am humbled, ladies and gentlemen. Help me thank an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony. And it's only, I think, I could remember if I'm wrong, it's only think there's three African-Americans that have it. Four? What is is it, Drew? Three (laughs)
2: African-Americans. Me, uh, Jennifer Hudson, and Whoopi Goldberg. I'm the only black man. Yes, and uh, yes, yeah, it's rare, rare company to be a part of.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, you just heard greatness from somebody who has experienced greatness and made greatness. Help me celebrate somebody that's gonna be here for a long, long time. Thank you, sir, John Legend. Thank you, brother. God bless you. Thank you, King. So thank y'all so much for listening to Good Words, man. I hope you are enjoying yourself. I hope you're, man, enjoying the journey that you're taking with your boy. And if you are, please do me a favor. Leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Can you do that for me? I'd appreciate it. And don't you forget, you can never go too far or you can't come back home. Good Words with Kirk Franklin is a collaboration between For Your Soul Entertainment, Sony Music Entertainment, R.C. Inspiration, and something else. Produced by Janicia Francis, with senior producer Danielle Jones-Wesley. Associate producers are Danya Abdelhamid, Rachel Chodar, and Kyra Asabe Bansu. It's executive produced by Ron Hill, Reese Brooks, Sarita Wesley, Tom Koenig, hybrid agency, and myself, your boy, Kirk Franklin. This episode was mixed by Calvin Bailiff and special thanks to Charlie Yador and Steve Ackerman.